Hi, I'm Lonnie Diane Rich, and I just keep saving people. It's kind of pesky. We are here today to talk about Grave, the 22nd episode of season six. It aired on May 21st, 2002, and was written by David Fury with Rebecca Rand Kirshner and Stephen S. DeKnight as story editors. This episode was directed by James A. Contner, one of our first string directors for Buffy. Contner has been at the helm of some of the best episodes of Buffy, including Helpless, The Harsh Light of Day, The Replacement, Dead Things, and most recently, Entropy. Grave is the finale for season six, the thing we've been building up to all season, and the third act in the three-parter that started with Villains and Two to Go. This is what we've been waiting for, guys. And I'm not really sure how I feel about that. How'd you do that? <sighs> That's borrowed power. No way is it going to be strong I'm enough. I'm here to help you. Uh, thanks, but I can kill a couple geeks all by myself. Season six has been a bumpy ride, sometimes taking us through incredible scenic vistas and sometimes forcing us into that weird part of town with nothing but roadside strip malls filled with dry cleaners and stores that sell clown costumes. But now, finally, we're at our destination, the place where we were headed all along. And I have to say, now that we're here, I kind of love season six. Yes, parts of it were strange and off-putting, but the show was trying to do something interesting, and they did. Playing it safe is for losers and weenies. The real work happens on the edges where things could go horribly, horribly wrong at any moment. Sometimes those ventures end up being every bit the disaster you'd predict. And sometimes they turn into these amazing pieces of art that change your life. Buffy season six was neither of these things. Although if forced to place it on a spectrum, I think it lands closer to life changer than disaster. But it was interesting. It provided some fantastic discussion topics, and even in its weirdest moments, it was never boring. I think that counts for a lot. While season six has never been my favorite season of Buffy, I like it more every time I watch it. And now that I've worked through it with you guys, I like it even more. I'm grateful the production team took a chance and swung for the fences. It's better to swing and whiff than to never get the nerve up to swing at all. Whether you're a season six defender like me or a full-on hater, I think you've got to give it up to the team. They were bold. And you know what? Boldness matters. Boldness changes the world. Now, this specific episode, well, it's not the best in season six. It's not the worst. There are some powerful things happening in Grave, but unfortunately, they're packed inside a metric ton of packing peanuts, that annoying static clingy flotsam you have to plow through to get to the good stuff inside. What I have tended to do in the past with Grave is squint until my sight gets just a little fuzzy and I only see the good stuff and then I whistle past the rest. This time, because I'm looking at it critically, I had to pay attention. And Grave is not as good when I pay attention. Conceptually, some of what I love the most in season six happens in this episode. Most of it is in the last 10 minutes, though. And the rest? Well... This is my celebratory end of the season drinks. If I am slurring my words by the conclusion, that is my humiliating gift to you all. There's also a fair to middling chance that at some point during this analysis, I'm going to cry. <sighs> Let's get into the weeds. She's going to finish it. Finish what? The world. <laughs> 
Oh my God, I haven't seen Giles since I started Still Pretty and I kind of feel like Anya. I changed my hair, Giles. It looks got pink in it. Well, it's good to have Giles back. I felt a little disappointed by the whole giggle fit thing with Buffy. I mean, I get what they were going for, the lighthearted reunion, but this is not a lighthearted time. And the story Buffy's telling about how she tried to kill the people she loved the most, including the recently deceased Tara, that's not a funny story. Invisible Buffy. Now that's a funny story. Why did they do that one? It also feels really awkward in the moment. And let me tell you something. If Anthony Stewart Head and Sarah Michelle Geller can't sell a scene, then it is my contention that scene cannot be sold. But aside from that, having Giles back with magical blasting power is wonderful. For a long time, Giles was sidelined, always on the back end of the fight, always providing the exposition and support while the kids did the actual thing. Here, he comes blasting in like a goddamn superhero wearing a long black coat and looking mighty fine. Maybe it's because I'm a little older on this watch through, but Giles is super hot, y'all. Call me Tony. Wait, is he single? Is he straight? Doesn't matter. (laughs) He's not going to call me anyway. Most of Giles' narrative purpose in this episode is to keep Willow busy, and you can feel it. The magical fight between them with Willow quipping and Giles looking pained and disappointed feels like we're going around the mulberry bush a few too many times. Then, when she takes his magic and feels everything and runs off to, wait for it now, destroy the world, bring on the apocalypse, it feels like Giles just done fucked up. As he lay dying on the floor of the magic box, Anya at his side, trying not to judge his choices... So in retrospect, it probably would have been better if you hadn't come and given Willow all that magic that made her like 10 times more powerful. It feels like it was kind of a high-risk strategy, but still, it's fun to have him back. I don't care how much he almost got everyone killed. I love me some Rupert Giles. What? You think I never watched you? If we thought Buffy had been sidelined before, that's nothing compared to this episode, which she spends giggling with Giles, chasing a fiery ball, and fighting off tree root demons in a cavern with Dawn. But even as she's sidelined and not given the best material, this time with Dawn is one of my favorite Summer's Girls moments. I said before how much I would have loved it if the conflict between Buffy and Dawn this season had been about Dawn's desire to be in the fight versus Buffy's need to protect Dawn and keep her safe, keep her out of this world, and preserve normal teenage life for her. Yes, I would have loved that, but it's not what we got, and I accept it. That said, this moment at the end when Buffy realizes what she wants is to teach Dawn to fight, it's pretty great. And it puts a final cap on that whiny, annoying Dawn we've been saddled with for most of the season. When Dawn grabs the sword and gets into the fight and shows what she's learned just from watching Buffy, oh my god. I want to see Dawn become a fierce warrior, not because she was chosen, but because she chose. And while we don't get that story, or at least we don't seem to get it on purpose, I'm happy to headcanon what we don't get on my own because Dawn with a sword stepping into the fight and being exceptional without being superpowered, that's a badass story. And I'm happy to make most of it up in my head if I have to. So you give me what I want. Make me what I was so Buffy can get what she deserves. Very well. We will return your soul. Ah! 
We're going to address this twist early because when I get done talking about Willow and Xander, I'm going to be all weepy and teary-eyed and I won't be able to do this part justice. First, the twist. All through these scenes in the past few episodes, which if you want to talk about going around the mulberry bush, oh my god, it was the same thing over and over again with only the specific details of each trial changing. Yes, we get it. He wants to be restored. Bitch is going to see a change. Yada, yada, yada. As twists go, it's okay, but when you have to mislead your audience in order to land a twist, then you didn't land the twist. Look, I enjoy a twist as much as the next girl, but I hate being lied to. I hate when the impact of the twist comes from one expectation being deliberately set up to the point where, once you discover the twist and then rewind and review the relevant scenes, it doesn't make sense anymore. If Spike was going to Africa to have the chip magically removed, then everything he did and said would make sense. The menacing, I'll be back, Slayer, and all the times he called her a bitch, she's going to get what's coming to her, blah, blah, blah. This isn't the monologuing of a man who is out to restore his humanity so he can win back the woman he loves. This is the delusional self-talk of the spurned lover who wants to be able to destroy the woman who rejected him. And while I like the soul thing better, I love that Spike went out and chose his soul while stupid Angel has to have it forced on him over and over and over again. I don't like being deliberately misled. If I can't go back and review all those scenes and have them make just as much sense after the twist as they did before, then the writers did it wrong. And you can't blame it on Fury because he inherited that bullshit. I'm disappointed, but in the end, I'm one of the people who loves the twist and what it means as we move into season seven. Oh God, I want to talk about that now, but I won't. I'll wait for season seven, but I wanna. Mexico, huh? So we spent this whole season building up this story of human evil versus demonic evil, boys playing at being men, and we've set up this whole potential arc for Jonathan where he was finally going to stand up and do the right thing, and then we trade it all in for a joke. Now, I get it, we're so far past the geek trio, well, I guess it's the duo now, that they really have become irrelevant, and now that Willow's not trying to kill them anymore, they become something of a narrative weight around the neck. But still, there was interesting stuff happening here. I wanted to see Jonathan do something heroic, land that arc in a way that actually meant something. I can see Andrew running off to Mexico, but Jonathan? I wanted more for him. And then, as if that wasn't bad enough, we end with this homophobic joke where they're hitching to Mexico with a creepy truck driver and... Come on. We couldn't have done better than this, guys? Really? Well, we could have. We just didn't. Uh-oh. Daddy's home. I'm in wicked trouble now. You have no idea. We get some fun evil Willow in this episode. The daddy's home thing when she calls him Rupert and says she turned pro. And her quips at that pesky people-saving slayer. It's fun because it's always fun to watch Allison Hannigan do anything. But it's not particularly interesting. We don't get the depth here that we got even last week in Two to Go. Last week, when Dawn mentioned Tara, we saw just a flicker of Willow's hell in her eyes, and we saw her respond by going for the throat, specifically Dawn's. Here, when Giles asks Willow what Tara would think of what she's doing, we hardly get a flicker of a response from Willow. 
And I think that's the problem. Prior to Grave, we were playing Evil Willow for the pathos. Here, it's just novelty. Look at her fight Giles. Look at her quip just like a real bad guy. Look at her and let me just add an emphatic ugh to this. Once again, get high on the magics. Yes, it's a novelty. Going down this dark path with sweet, balanced Willow has been interesting all season, if for nothing else than the novelty. But most of the time, we brought deeper themes and ideas into the novelty. Hell, I may hate the magic is drugs metaphor, but at least it meant something. This isn't interesting. It's just a quippy bad guy with no real sense of the person inside. If we'd seen flashes of that Willow, our Willow, only to have the darkness reach out and take her again because the light is too painful, that would have been something. But this? Up until the final scene where Xander steps in and saves the day, we don't see that internal battle, and it's a shame. It's a missed opportunity. But before we get into what happens with Xander, I think I should take this opportunity to talk about Allison Hannigan. <laughs> I haven't talked about her much yet, because I wanted to wait until we were done, and now that we're done, I have to say, I don't think there's anything this woman can't do. Her ability to convey genuine goodness, overwhelming evil, devastating heartbreak. Her ability to land both the humor and the pathos. Her extreme generosity and never letting her talent chew up the scenery so much that there wasn't anything left for anyone else. She's phenomenal. She's one of those actresses who is so generous with her work and her space that you can easily forget, or hell, not even notice, how incredibly good she is. She makes it look effortless, but as someone without even the tiniest smidge of this woman's acting talent, I can tell you, nothing about any of what this woman does is easy. But still, it's not enough to induce me to watch How I Met Your Mother. Apparently, even my undying love for Allison Hannigan and Neil Patrick Harris can't get me past how much of a douche Ted is. Is this the master plan? You're gonna stop me by telling me you love me? Well, I was gonna walk you off a cliff and hand you an anvil, but you seem kind of cartoony. I have spoken often and loudly about how wonderful Xander is and how much I love him, despite the fact that for the bulk of Buffy, he is, well, kind of awful. It wasn't until I got through this critical watch that I even noticed how bad he was, and each time it happened, I was always like, oh, that's an aberration. That's not the real Xander. That's not my Xander. But the more I watched, the more I realized. My Xander was showing up a lot less frequently than jerky Xander. My Xander was kind of a figment of my imagination. But Xander here, Xander now, this is the guy we've been waiting for. Xander, who loves Willow so completely that even when she's about to destroy the world, he goes to her to die by her side. He doesn't know that anything he says will have any effect on her. She's so far gone. How could he expect that? He goes to her and he just loves her. She's his best friend and she's more than that. She's his family, his other half, his soul. Without Willow, Xander doesn't make sense. And so when Buffy's superpowers and Giles Coven couldn't stop Willow... It's Xander who steps in with no expectation of being able to change anything. It's just that if he's going to die, he's going to die with Willow. And that's my Xander. This is the guy I've loved all along, the one that I always saw inside Xander, even when he was at his worst. Whatever his faults, and they are plenty, the purity and honesty of Xander's love for Willow is something that gets me every time. I'm a sucker for proof of love, you know? Those moments in stories when someone has absolutely nothing to gain from their actions, but they do it anyway, because of love. When Mr. Darcy saves Lydia from the despicable Wickham with no expectation that Lizzie will ever know about it, let alone be grateful to him for it, that's proof of love. 
When Angel chooses to turn back the clock and give up his humanity to protect Buffy and I will remember you, that's proof of love. And when Xander steps in between Willow and her pain and says simply, I love you, I am here with you, and I will let you kill me before I leave you to go through this alone. It's proof of love. And with all the power flying around, with the covens and the shadowy magic dealers and the chosen and the vampires, we avert this year's apocalypse with simple human love. I'm not one of those people who can say, and love is the most powerful thing of all, without rolling my eyes. I mean, I know, love is powerful, it can save you, but it can also devastate you. It can tear you apart, especially if, like me, you tend to love unwisely. Love makes us do crazy things and it makes us hide away, too afraid of it sometimes to do anything at all. Love is wild and uncontrollable and quiet and attentive. It is all of these things at the same time because it is a wild force that serves no master but itself. It creates and it destroys. But this love, love that isn't about sex or desire or possession, Love that isn't just because you've known this person so long that you kind of don't have a choice but to love them no matter how much of an asshole they are. Love that isn't loud and in your face, but rather so quiet, it just hums in the background and you could be forgiven for not even noticing it's there at all. This love, this love, it is so pure and so powerful that it can save the world. (laughs) And that's as much sap as you're getting from me today. Move along now. Nothing to see here. I love you. This season has been about a lot of things. Human evil, demonic evil, misogyny, nerds, vengeance, and of course, power. Buffy has always been a discussion about power. Unwanted power like Buffy's, unearned power like Warren's, power that possesses you, Spike, Willow, power that you borrow, Giles, power that you pay for, Anya. And with every power, there's a balance, there are rules. Vampires have power, but something as simple as sunlight or a large splinter in just the right place can turn them into dust. Anya has the power to wreak unholy vengeance, just not for herself. Buffy has a power she has to keep in check. She can't use it however she wants without regard for the consequences. Season six is about what happens when power runs out of control, when people who shouldn't have power get it. And how something as simple and pedestrian as a best friend can be more powerful than the kind of magic that can destroy a planet. The season hasn't been an unqualified success, and I'm not going to make that argument, but it hasn't been a failure either. While I'm not sure we landed smoothly in Grave, we landed, and there are interesting questions to be asked and answered when talking about the season as a whole. That'll do it for today. I'll be back in two weeks with Season 7, Episode 1, Lessons. Until then... Stay Pretty. Still Pretty is a chipperish media production and is entirely patron-supported. To find out how you can keep us in production, visit patreon.com slash chipperish.